wife's family loves the Lord of the Rings. When I met Rachel, I had never heard of the Lord of the Rings, which had its complications early in our marriage. I'm also one of those guys who asked lots of questions during movies. So in their kindness, or perhaps to minimize annoyances, I received a crash course in the Fellowship of the Ring and the Two Towers before they took me to watch The Return of the King at Christmas. It took like a whole day. Needless to say, that took care of only half my questions. But I appreciated their efforts to acquaint me with the storyline of parts one and two before watching three. When we come to the book of Acts, remember that it is part two of a much larger story. Part one is the gospel of Luke. And a major theme in Luke's gospel is the triumph of Jesus' kingdom over the kingdom of Satan. In Luke chapter 4, Satan presents himself as a worldwide ruler. Satan offers all the kingdoms of the world to Jesus if Jesus would only bow. But Jesus resists. He will gain the nations through a cross. In Luke chapter 11, Satan is portrayed as the prince of demons. He's like a a strong man, Luke says, that's fully armed. But Jesus is stronger. He, he removes Satan's armor, he overcomes Satan, and he plunders Satan's kingdom. Jesus also proves his power over Satan's kingdom by casting out demons and healing others from unclean spirits. Luke 10 says that he watched Satan fall like lightning after authorizing the disciples to do likewise. And then finally, we find Satan playing a role in Jesus' betrayal. Satan enters into Judas. Satan tries to sift Peter. But Jesus is in control. He tells them, this is your hour and the power of darkness. That's all you're getting. Jesus then prays for Peter's faith not to fail. What's the point? These These displays of Jesus' power over darkness identify Jesus as the one anticipated in Genesis 3.15 who is going to come and crush the serpent's head. Jesus comes to defeat Satan's tyranny, to liberate captives. And most decisively, Jesus defeats Satan's kingdom through his death and resurrection. Jesus died to liberate his people, and then he rose to show that evil will not prevail over his people. Every blood-bought person God will transfer from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved Son. That's the backstory to the book of Acts. Acts stands on the other side of Jesus' resurrection. Jesus' kingdom continues colliding with the kingdom of darkness. And the only difference is that Jesus' kingdom is now present in His people. As His people go from city to city to city and preach the kingdom, they confront the kingdom of darkness. And again and again, Jesus 
prevails, but there's much for us to learn when these two kingdoms collide. So let's pick it up in verse 16 of chapter 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Father, I ask that you would bless our time in the Word this morning, and you would use it to strengthen our faith as we go into this world, and as we face the kingdom of darkness Uh, you would give us great courage and hope in Christ. In His name we pray this morning. Amen. So we've got two scenes here, and we've got four lessons to learn from them. I just want to first walk through these two scenes. Uh, In scene one, Jesus' kingdom encounters the satanic and the self-indulgent. Jesus' kingdom encounters the satanic and self-indulgent. Paul and his team, they they are returning to the the place of prayer. Uh, Previously, they'd met a group of women who had gathered at a place for prayer, and they shared the gospel, and the Lord saved Lydia, and now they're going back to share the gospel some more. Uh, But then they encounter this slave girl who has a spirit of divination, and we know it's an evil spirit because the spirit leads her into fortune-telling which the Scripture forbids elsewhere. She's kind of like the witch of Endor in 1 Samuel 28, manipulating the supernatural to get results. Uh, Also, uh, you know, her words are similar to those spoken uh, to Jesus by demons in, in in the Gospels. What have you to do with us, Son of the Most High? Uh, Then uh, finally, Paul has to exercise the spirit the same way Jesus commands unclean spirits to come out of people in in the Gospels. So we're dealing with the demonic here when we're uh, working through this text. Uh, Spiritual forces of evil are working through this slave girl. But notice something else about her. Uh, She's being used. She's being used in the midst of her spiritual oppression. Uh, She brought her owners much gain, it says in verse 16, by by this fortune-telling. It's bad enough that they treat her as property instead of God's image-bearer. 
But then they also profit off of her spiritual oppression. Their love for money has made them doubly blind. And so we have here the satanic and the self-indulgent, and they're interrelated. And that kingdom then collides with Jesus' kingdom as this slave girl follows Paul and his team, crying out, you know, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you with a way of salvation. Now, there's nothing wrong with her words in and of themselves. I mean, understood one way, they're true. Paul is a servant of the Most High God. He, he proclaims the way of, of salvation. But what does that message become when it's spoken by someone with an evil spirit? What does that message become when not only is it spoken by someone with an evil spirit, it's also spoken in a polytheistic culture? It's confusing at best. It undermines Paul's credibility. Everybody in Philippi knows this girl speaks by a spirit of divination. Maybe she can just get people to believe that the spirit of Jesus by which Paul speaks is no different than the spirit of divination by which she speaks. She's also relativizing the gospel within her polytheistic culture. The Most High God was very often used of Zeus. So the the gospel then becomes just one way of deliverance, one way to this Most High God, among others in their culture. Whatever the case, her motives are wicked and they seek to undermine the spread of Jesus' kingdom. And this happens for many days. We're we're not told why Paul waits so long. Uh, Perhaps it was for discernment. Perhaps he was patiently enduring evil, like 2 Timothy 2.24 says. But eventually he gets annoyed, he's disturbed by how the Spirit adversely affects the work, and he says directly to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and the Spirit came out that very hour. Just like that, the the Spirit flees. And the key thing to notice are the words, in the name of Jesus Christ. I don't mean the bare words in the sense that as long as you just employ this slogan, evil spirits will flee. No. No. That goes really badly for some guys in Acts 19. An evil spirit leaps on them, beats them down, and sends them away naked. All right? It's in your Bible. What matters is actually belonging to Jesus and being authorized by Jesus. Paul has Jesus' authorization. But even more, the name of Jesus Christ here, it leaves nothing vague. Right? The apostles don't invoke the power of some vague, most high God. They invoke the power of the crucified and risen Lord Jesus. And what this is telling us is He is alive. He is reigning above all authorities in heaven and on earth. He is now with His apostles and this team of guys. Paul doesn't have the power to cast out the demons, but Jesus does. And Jesus does it for this slave girl. Ironically, but truly, she has encountered the way of salvation, the way of deliverance. The way of deliverance is through Jesus Christ. Only Jesus can defeat sin and Satan's tyranny in people's lives. And that brings us to scene two, which is the results. The results. What are the results of this girl's deliverance? Well, the self-indulgent 
go to war against Christ's kingdom. The self-indulgent war against Jesus' kingdom. The Lord Jesus delivers this girl from the evil spirit and her owner's despair. How, how does he put it in verse 19? When her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone. Their hope of gain was, was gone. They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And there's a play on word here. The, the word behind the spirit going out of the girl is the same word behind the hope of gain going out of her owners. When the demonic went out, so did their hope of gain. The kingdom of Christ in this situation right here has economic ramifications. And they don't like it. They hate it. Do you see how insane and dark this is? They would rather have the demon and their money than Christ and true freedom. This would be comparable to a drug lord getting angry with doctors who successfully break people's drug addiction. People don't need the drugs. Their profits plummet. So the drug lord goes after the guy who's healing people. It's insane. It's demonic. It's it's no wonder the Bible says not to fall in love with money. It's no wonder Jesus says it's impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Why? He lives for another kingdom. And a dark one at that. He hopes in his own material gain and he doesn't care if it means abusing God's image bearers or linking arms with the devil. And so what do the owners do? They, they try to stop Christ's kingdom. They drag Paul and Silas into the street and they bring them to the magistrates and then they level two accusations. One is socio-political. They're throwing our whole city into confusion. And the other is cultural. They're advocating customs not lawful for us to accept or practice. The initial motive was economic. Their hope of gain was lost. But that doesn't sound as noble, right? Go into the streets. They're taking all of our money away. So they make it political and cultural. There's even a bit of ethnic pride in the mix. We're Romans. They're Jews. And Paul and Silas haven't caused any uproar. All they did was deliver a girl from the demon. They brought the presence of Christ's kingdom near to this city of Philippi through the gospel. But it turns out that kingdom is subversive. It's subversive to their way of life. It's subversive to the way they've always done things. And so what happens? Exactly what Jesus promised would happen. Persecution. The crowd joined in attacking them, it says, and the magistrates tore the garments off of them, and they gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So they're dragged, misrepresented, shamed, beaten, and imprisoned, All because these guys want to keep their money and because the crowds don't want to change their way of living. They don't want to change their politics. They don't want to change their culture. They don't want to change their economy. They can't see it for themselves, but they prefer Satan's kingdom over Christ. They prefer her spiritual oppression over freedom. 
This is just like it is in the book of Revelation. Uh, Revelation portrays this great dragon, which is Satan, controlling kings and political structures and economies that do his bidding. Satan has a kingdom of darkness that deceives people and oppresses people and systematically sets people against Christ. And these folks belong to that dark kingdom. They war against the kingdom of Christ by persecuting Christ's disciples. So what can we learn from these scenes of Christ's kingdom when it collides with, with Satan's kingdoms? I've got four lessons the Lord taught me this week, passing on to you. One, Christ's kingdom is subversive to the world's way of thinking and living. Christ's kingdom is subversive to the world's way of thinking and living. Paul and Silas, remember the kingdom of God present in his people, they, they cast out this Demon, and that has immediate economic repercussions for the girl's owners. And then there's panic that Christ's kingdom is going to overthrow everything else too. We can't can't change. It's not hard to think of other ways Christ's kingdom is subversive to the way the world operates. Consider what it means to be a Christian in a political environment where the state claims Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. The gospel that you and I preach says Jesus is Lord. And any authority leading you to disobey Christ should not be obeyed. That's proven in a number of historical settings to be politically subversive. It's also subversive to any leader or any employer or any parent, or any husband who abuses their authority. But it shines a spotlight on one who is truly Lord, and His name is Jesus Christ. Or consider when Christ's kingdom confronts racism and the darkness of slavery. I mean, entire cultures profited off of the mistreatment of others. People were used to it. It was built into the laws and the customs of the day. And then the gospel enters and says, no, no, no. We're all united in Adam and created in the image of God. And the cross of Christ levels your racial pride. And therefore, you can't treat people like this anymore. That message is is subversive to those cultures. It threatened their economy. It threatened their politics. It threatened their pride. And it still threatens those things today. In whatever culture, racism exists. Christ's kingdom is subversive to ethnic pride and prejudice. Or, let's take a different kind of slavery. Sex slavery. The sex industry profits off the spiritual oppression of other people, especially women. And if you indulge in pornography, you're feeding this system. One anti-trafficking center reports that at least a third of victims trafficked for sex are used in the production of pornography. Christ's kingdom is subversive to that culture. 
Christ demands we care for women as fellow image bearers and not as objects of gratification. The kingdom of Christ says to flee sexual immorality and to glorify God with your body. When the gospel saves men and women from sex slavery, what happens? The sex industry's profits plummet. Pray the kingdom of Christ drains this satanic $13 billion industry in America alone. And that will only happen as the gospel goes forth and people actually submit to it. We can see this in other areas too, like the abortion industry. You know, our culture says that unborn babies have no rights and the mother has the authority to choose if the baby lives or not. Christ's kingdom is subversive to that way of thinking and living, and it has political and economic repercussions. I was talking to Max about this, and he pointed out that Christians have been fighting for the unborn because of the gospel, which has then resulted in abortion clinics being shut down and the ability to purchase aborted baby parts and tissue more difficult. And the abortion industry is feverishly fighting it. We saw it a couple of years ago in Capitol, and they got groups wearing pink chatting Satan rules. Or how about the way the kingdom of Christ is subversive to our culture's materialism? America says, pile it up high, spend it on yourself. It's all about the Benjamins, baby. Uh huh. But the kingdom of Christ says don't set your hope in riches and work hard that you might have and have in order that you might give to those in need and give freely with no expectation of receiving back and lay up treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy. You can't serve God and money. That's subversive to the way the world thinks and lives and it'll get you crucified. The world says, me first, but Christ says, become a slave of all. The world says, live the best life now, but Christ says, take up your cross now. It's subversive to the way the world thinks and lives, and it'll get you crucified. Which is another lesson connected to the first. When the power of Jesus' kingdom works in us, when our lives actually impact the world's way of thinking and living, the world will put put will persecute us. Expect unjust treatment when you confront the world's darkness. That's lesson two. Expect unjust treatment when you confront the world's darkness. It's, it's very unjust. I mean, Paul and Silas haven't done anything. Here. Not, not only that, Paul's a Roman citizen, and this, the way they're handling him is wrong. We'll see that next, next time we're in Acts. The world won't give up its system of beliefs and ways of doing things easily. In the same way the world crucified Christ, it will crucify Christ's followers. In the same way the Romans persecuted Paul and Silas, America will persecute us. The question is whether the kingdom we're preaching is actually Christ's. 
When you look at this picture of Paul and Silas suffering for the gospel, you need to count the cost. Right here. This is Christianity 101. We're called to imitate Paul as he imitates Christ. This is your life and mine. And Jesus said, A servant isn't greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And this is what happens when the children of light enter the darkness. You know, last week we looked at how the Spirit of Jesus guided Paul and his team on the mission. Right, The Spirit of Jesus directed them away from some areas and then into Macedonia. The Spirit of Jesus had them share the gospel with Jesus. I mean, share the gospel with Lydia. And I said, hey, we need to pray that the Spirit of Jesus leads us and guides us into the mission. Well, this story right here helps us see that as the Spirit of Jesus guides His people, the Spirit of Jesus also makes Jesus' people like Jesus as they lay down their lives to spread the Gospel. We'll see next week how Jesus also sustains His people in suffering. Uh, Paul and Silas... They're in jail with their feet in stocks and they're praying and singing hymns to the Lord. Jesus is with them and strengthening them. But unjust treatment will come as He uses us to advance His kingdom. The Christian life is war. Not against flesh and blood, but against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Lesson three, beware the love of money. Beware the love of money. 1 Timothy 6.10 says, The love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. And as your shepherd, I don't want any of you to wander away from the faith. So look... Look what happens to these owners when money is their love, when, when their hope is in their material gain. Notice that they use people to get what they want. They use people to get what they want. Sin will always dehumanize people. It will either make them into objects in the way of what you want or vehicles of getting what you want. This girl is nothing but a vehicle to fill their wallets. And when money controls you, you'll do the same thing. You will use people. They won't even be people to you when you love money. They'll just be a means to an end. You'll take advantage of them and hurt them if you have to and threaten them to keep your bank account full. Notice also that they don't mind befriending the satanic. They know this girl has a spirit of divination. That's how they're making their big bucks. And yet they don't mind a bit if it means greater wealth for them. When the love of money controls you, you will befriend the satanic. Some of Satan's schemes won't even be obvious to to you, but you will befriend them. You will love them because you profit off of them. And when you link arms with the kingdom of darkness, you will war against the kingdom of Christ. 
Christ citizens will confront you about your money and you'll resist them and you will slander them and you will hurt them if you have to. Or maybe you won't hurt them. You'll just refuse to give up how you've always done things. You'll ignore their counsel. You'll put them out of your lives. So be very warned here, especially since we live in a culture where materialism is so rampant. The love of money will lead you to use people to befriend the satanic, and to war against the kingdom of Christ. This little situation in Philippi is just a little manifestation of a greater cosmic battle going on. I mentioned Revelation earlier. Revelation 18, we see this this picture of Christ judging the great Babylon, this great system of evil, and guess who mourns because no one's buying their cargo anymore. It's the merchants and the shipmasters. They don't weep over their sin. They weep because their whole world is crashing down and is being replaced by Christ's kingdom. Their kingdom is being toppled and they are freaking out. Exactly what's happening here as the kingdom of Christ replaces the kingdom of Satan in our passage. Beware of the love of money. Make yourself rich in God. Set your hope on God who gives us all things to enjoy. Invest in true heavenly treasure that never disappoint. Last lesson. The authority of the risen Jesus offers great hope when we face evil. The authority of the risen Jesus offers us great hope when we face evil. Look at Paul rebukes this evil spirit by Jesus' authority, and the evil spirit flees. And this passage demonstrates once again that Jesus' kingdom is more powerful than Satan's. Okay? You got these two kingdoms colliding, but we see they're not equal kingdoms. All right? They're not equal kingdoms. Jesus' kingdom is more powerful. The kingdom of darkness bows to Jesus' authority, which means that what Jesus said in John 12, 31 stands true. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out when he's going to the cross. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. It's through his cross that Jesus ousts the ruler of this world. And Ephesians tells us that Jesus' resurrection means that he's seated far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. That includes evil rule, authority, power, and dominion. And what's amazing is that Ephesians 2 says that we're seated with him. Those of us who belong to Christ are seated with him far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Right? He raised us up with him. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. We followed Satan around all our lives. But he made us alive together with Christ and he seated us with him in the heavenly places. We have yet to see that reality fully manifested on earth, but it's still true. In Christ, you are seated with him above every rule, authority, power, and dominion. And that ought to give you great courage in the face of temptation. Right? You're not a helpless victim 
of temptation and sin. I'm talking to believers who are united to Christ. You are not a helpless victim of temptation and sin. If you are in Christ, you are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And by His Spirit, you have the granted ability to resist the evil one's temptation. If you're not resisting the evil one's temptation, it's because you really want the temptation. You don't want Christ. You want sin. That's why you're not resisting it. You have the ability in Christ, being seated in the heavenly places with Him, to resist the temptation. And don't let any devil tell you otherwise. 1 John 5.18 says, Everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God, that's Jesus, protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Christ is your victory over the satanic. Christ is your victory over temptation. Christ is your victory over all the evils, like this one we see here, called self-indulgence. Moreover, the authority of Christ here should give us great courage when helping others oppressed by spiritual forces of darkness. The demonic did not vanish with Western civilization. It just disguises itself differently. People are still oppressed by unclean spirits. People are still deceived by the devil. People are still blinded by Satan, like 2 Corinthians 4 says. People fear the spirit world and bend over backwards to avoid making it unhappy. Entire cults have risen because some guy saw an angel of light, not realizing it was actually an angel, uh, uh, it was actually Satan in disguise. Satan's having a heyday through various social media outlets where all kinds of corrupting talk divide people. We can pray for these people, we can pray for their healing and deliverance. We have access to the omnipotent Christ who can actually do something about it. We can also speak the truth of the gospel into their lives and expose the darkness for what it is. That's why the armor of God includes feet that are shod with the gospel of peace and the sword of the Spirit. You're leaping over enemy lines and wielding the sword. Which is the Word of God. We go across enemy lines. We speak the message that rescues people from Satan's lies and tyranny. A picture like this one in Acts 16, where Paul Cast out this demon is just further confirmation that Satan's kingdom can't win. It flees at the name of Jesus. And that helps us in our individual fight against temptation and it also helps us in our witness to the world that is being blinded by Satan. Christ's authority is our only hope when facing evil. So when you eat this supper together, remember the Lord's victory and the hope that we have in His coming kingdom. 
He is your strength today. When you're eating the bread and drinking the cup, remember, He is your strength today against evil. And He will prevail over all evil when He comes to replace every rebel kingdom with His own. Amen?